Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course. Um, and we are we're joined today by another James. So if you get if it gets confusing uh, during this uh, podcast, just you can we can switch over to Viking for for James. Well, well, what, or what's your, Viking or for your James? Jim, I don't know. Anyway, James. Yeah, all right. Who are we joined by today, James? Well, we're. <laughs> We are joined by Dr. James Rogers, who is a historian and um, professor at the Danish Institute for Advanced Study. He's also a fellow of the school, London School of Economics. Um, he's done loads and loads of telly. Um, he does lots of stuff of history here, and he's an all-round good egg. Excellent. Well, I like good eggs. And we're going to and we're going to be talking to James today about a, a, what, on the face of it, might seem a rather niche subject. Mm. Hmm. Drone warfare. Drone in the warfare in the Second World War, but 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 surely surely drone warfare. But surely is, not. Is I hear you ask. From the 2010s, Jim. Um, uh, uh, welcome, James. Thanks for joining us. Uh, there's a, no, there's a no worries at all. Convoluted <laughs> introduction, if ever there was one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we made a bit of a meal of it. Now, this, the truth is, this is our second attempt to talk to you. And, um, we were technologically challenged last time because you were in Crete. I and, was in uh, Crete. Yes. Um. Uh. uh looking at the. If I recall, you were looking at the, how they got out of Crete rather than the, how the British... And how they got in. Commonwealth <laughs> troops. Yes, exactly. How the Duke forces got out, the, the, the escape route, essentially. Was that right? Yeah, I was, I was looking at a bit of that. I was trying to learn as much as I could, really, because shamefully, I knew so little about the Battle of Crete, apart from yeah. it didn't last very long, and we were kind of out-duped by the Germans who came in yeah. via the air with the airborne troops, and we were ready for a kind of naval attack and a landing. So yeah. I wanted to learn a lot about that, and then I wanted to look at how we managed to escape out to North Africa, but also how the resistance carried on, because yeah. it was the resistance for me that is just completely incredible. And only when you go to Crete, can you understand how they were able to operate? Yeah. Crete is massive. It's not your normal Greek island. It is gigantic and mountainous. And it's only through that that the resistance could really survive. Yeah, well, the the, the sort of mountain interior is, is essentially infinite, isn't it? Um, because it's so big and with so many sort of nooks and crannies. And the, and, and the Cretans knew it as well. So the, the, well, the, the I, mean, I mean, you know, wherever there's... I mean, basically, by the second half of the Second World War in Europe, wherever there's mountains, there are partisans. Yeah. And, and just over, just imagine, you're a German soldier. You've been put, you know, and you're from Hanover. And, and you've been posted to Crete. Are you likely to want to go into a, up, a, up a lonely mountain craggy path on an operation? Or would you rather stay down in the coastal areas where it's safe? Well, I think I'd certainly want to stay down by the coastal areas where it's safe. I mean, it, it has to be a strategic error to try and even take that island. The amount of resources yeah. Yeah. that it ends up investing and you have to pull away from the Eastern Front. You know, there's some historians mm. who argue that it really affected that campaign as Hitler moved in to the Soviet Union and you had to divert these resources. And also it saw the end to these airborne campaigns. It yeah. was successful, but they lost so many lives as they were being shot down as they came down in their parachutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's the mountain. 
It's the mounted troops, the Gebirgsjäger, who win the, who win, arguably who win the battle anyway. The airborne, the airborne causes great big upset, and then the Gebirgsjäger are the people who deliver yep. the, the victory, really. But 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 anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're not. No, I, I can do. I mean, I'm really happy to. No, but, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. We're not. We 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 we're not here to talk. drone warfare in the Second World War. So, well, first of all, we need to define our terms, don't we, James? Because I suppose a V1 is a drone, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's even more difficult today because <laughs> drones have turned around and become kind of these hybrid mix between the drone, which is the system, and then the weapon, which is a precision missile. And you yep. think about these loitering munitions or suicide drones we talk about today that are used in, in the war in Ukraine or supplied by the US to the Ukrainians, things like the switchblade. And yep. they, they've merged, you know, drones and precision missiles are almost one. You know, the only difference is with a, with a drone missile, a, a kamikaze drone, a suicide drone, they loiter in the air and pick out their target and then take out the target. And if you look back to the Second World War, then you can see you had the same sort of hybrids going on then. You had some experimentation with drone systems um, and you had some experimentation with these kind of suicide drones, these precision missiles. Yeah, yeah so the Germans developed guide by wire, didn't they, and, and radio-guided anti-shipping missiles certainly and anti-aircraft missiles but but i suppose drone drone you on what is it uav a, a, a unmanned aerial vehicle is the is the yeah it depends kind of the depends what military you want to come from i mean <laughs> if i'm talking to the u.s military and i call it a uav they don't like it if i call it a drone they don't like it for them it's a remotely piloted aerial vehicle because they love the idea that you have to say there's a pilot controlling it if you right. speak to the french military they are very happy to call it a drone and they'll even give you a cup that says drone on it so it all depends <laughs> what military you're talking to okay but, but there was also but there were things like the was it the ochres that the japanese had that, that that would would be strapped to a betty, and then it would sort of fly off, and and, and so it's almost kamikaze, but it but it wasn't quite kamikaze. If you yeah, absolutely. What I will say is that you know almost every power that was involved in the Second World War at some point during the interwar period was experimenting with some kind of drone technology. There's this quote in the New York Times in 1946, opening this article about drones, and it says drones are nothing new, and that's in 1946. So you know, that's amazing. We've been experimenting with these things for a long, long time. You know, the British were they took the um, the de Havilland Tiger Moth and they turned it into a drone, one of the first drones called the Queen Bee, and that's probably where we get drone from. It was created in 1935, but it was used largely for targeting. The whole point was to send that Tiger Moth up, that Queen Bee, let it go around the skies. It had a range of around 300 miles, so it could fly around until you hit it, basically. And it was to improve the accuracy of naval gunners or artillery off the ground, or anti-aircraft off the ground, sorry. And then you look through and you look at different nations and you look at the Germans and you mentioned this kind of guide-by-wire, the Fritz X, but that then turned into a radio control device as well. The reason why they wanted to be able to guide bombs, these kind of suicide drone sort of things, was like you say, so they could take out ships. You know, if you could get one of those Fritz X on target, it could penetrate 28 inches of armour. Uh, from 20,000 feet. The trouble is, is they only hit the target 20% of the time. So their precision was all about, you know, a tactical precision, you could call it, taking out a ship, taking out a high-value target. The British, it was all about more training and targeting. But for the Americans, now this is the one that fascinates me the most, because they probably invented what you could call the first ever drone. And this was called the Kettering Bug. 
And the whole point of the Kettering bug was to have more of a strategic effect in line with American strategic precision bombing doctrine, which was so very different to the ways in which the Germans and the British looked at area bombing. You know, the whole idea that in order to destroy something, you have to destroy everything. Well, the Americans went at strategic bombing a very different way. And this comes back, I suppose, with what it means to be American and these military cultures that we're talking about. You know, the 1823 Monroe Doctrine, the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary stated that the US would stay out of the brutal old wars of the European old world. America was meant to be in more geographically close conflicts, if you can even call them conflicts. It was all about policing wars, bandit interventions, small special forces deployments, places like Cuba, 1905, Nicaragua, mm. 1909, or, or Haiti, 1915. But, you know, even though Woodrow Wilson was elected on the promise that he wouldn't take America into the First World War. Well, he bloody well did, and he did it with some force as you started to have, you know, up to 300,000 American casualties and America's best, brightest, youngest caught in these bloody, muddy, entrenched battlefields uh, on the battlefields of Europe. Now, I remember going into the, uh, the US archives in the uh, New York Historical Society, and I wanted to know what the American public reaction to being duped like this was, to having their, their sons sent to these far and distant battlefields. And they were protests in the street. I've seen the pictures you're going through. You know, they called it a lost generation. And the call was that America would never get involved in those costly ground wars in Europe Well, ever yeah, again. absolutely. And that's, yeah, yeah. and that's why you have, you know, isolationism comes from that, that whole that whole policy. And there's also this, this theory, you know, one of the reasons why the Americans sort of really clamped down on their military is because if you've got a large military, you tend to use it. Whereas if you don't have a large military, obviously you don't. And, and you know, History would uh, rather support that theory. Well, and they get the, the, the Americans also got tangled up in what to do about their veterans' rights and all that sort of thing. So they had they had all sorts of political currents swirling around, and 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 an army an army that that had been designed for dealing dealing with the Mexicans that suddenly expanded to to trying to fight the Germans that suddenly had to contract back into itself and all this sort of stuff. So they, they've they've got they've got. It's, I always think the comparison with Britain is really, really interesting because the Americans say they're not an imperial power, but they definitely are. The, 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 their issue is that they've outsourced their security to, you know, we've talked, James and I have talked about this before, or Jim and I have talked about this before, for anyone who's still confused, um, it, it, that they'd outsourced their security to, European security to Britain and France. But, but they're, they're, you know, the Philippines is a big part of their military picture and all this sort of stuff. But like you say, it's about small-scale intervention, but also technological intervention, because, after all, Patton uses motor vehicles um, uh, in, when, in 1915, whatever 1915, it is. 1915, yeah. Exactly. And, and so they're looking for technological um, uh, solutions to, to, to ease the business of fighting. That's yes. part of their mindset, as much as it's it is. It's still not fresh policy. Exactly. But it's, but, well, and also you see it now. You know, you, you can completely see the Americans approach, the, they'll approach things technologically first or, or, or as, 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 as part of their leading edge as much as anything else. You know, if they can find a technical solution, that's what they'll, that's what, that's what they'll go for. I mean, it's, it, it, I mean the, the state of the American army and the way it, the, the, you know, and the American approach to war in the interwar years is absolutely fascinating because they sort of they've also got the tension between federal and state and they don't sort of don't know what to do about it 
So yeah, think about all of these domestic political issues that are going on. And then think about a very fledgling US Army Air Service that is really trying to craft its independence. And, you know, it's trying to get some money to invest in air power and make it so that it's something viable for any future war, learning the lessons from the First World War. And so what do they do? Well, they latch on to this public discontent and this political worry about future wars. And they say, I tell you what, if you want to avoid these these entrenched, brutal wars, we've got a solution for you. We can go over and not through the enemy. And we can do this in a really moral and ethical way. I promise we can. You don't have to do the way the British and the Germans are doing. We can pinpoint target with precision key enemy sites within their cities, their war-making capacity, to really blunt their fighting teeth so that the next time you meet them on the battlefield, you don't need to dig a trench to hide away from the guns because your enemy won't have bullets for their guns. We'll take out their munitions plants. We'll destroy their rubber processing places. You won't have tyres for your Jeeps. You know, this is the sort of thing they're thinking about here. We'll destroy the oil refineries. But the key quotes that I found as I was going through these early strategy documents was we will avoid the enemy, uh, we'll avoid the enemy populace and their livelihoods. Now, this was something that was very much in line with what the American politicians wanted to achieve and also what the public wanted to achieve. You know, this could mitigate the cost to American troops on the ground. And so they start getting some money to invest in this. And one of the things that they start to create is the Kettering bug, this drone that I mentioned. Yes, yes. So when are we we talking about here? When are we talking about Kettering bug? We're talking early... This is First First World War, is it? Late late First World War? Yeah. So early designs as early as 1916, then... Well... Kind of testing 1917. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. But continuing to be developed through the interwar period and even through the early days of the Second World War to try and make this drone, this aerial torpedo, work with accuracy. And so, so, so how is it? How is it being? How how is it flying? I mean, is, is this radio controlled or what? Right. So it's it's. It's high tech for the time, rudimentary for us, right? But what you do is you take this this Kettering bug uh, that's about the size, a bit smaller than a normal biplane. You pop it onto rails, right? And you put you position those rails in the direction of where you know that ammunitions factory is or ammunition store is, up to a hundred miles away. Now the Kettering bug will take off off those rails, being powered by a, a four cylinder engine with about forty horsepower. Now, it will fly directly as the crow flies for as long as you want it to because you can preset the amount of revolutions on that engine. So you turn that rotor as many times as you want for as far as you want this this drone to go. So let's say that the munitions factory is, I don't know, 70 miles away. You'll set it so that it cuts out at 70 miles as the crow flies. And then once that engine... But what about wind? What about wind factors and things like that? Yeah, that you know, that, um, we'll come to hey, that. Come on, about come on, Jim. Yeah, we're talking give about the Kettering bug a chance. Come on, you're like you're getting it. <laughs> well, the, what they thought is that so they they fitted it with an early Sperry gyroscope, one of the first that they had, and so that would keep it level and on course. Now, you, you're right to ask these questions, James, because you know in reality a lot of this was worse than useless. What happens is is when the uh, the drone, the Kettering bug, is over the target, um, in theory 
theory, uh, the, the engine stops, a chock comes in, the wings fall off, and what they said is it swoops down on its prey like a falcon. None of none of this worked. I mean, it would spin around in the sky. There's a couple of occasions it came back on the troops that launched it. I mean, this thing just didn't work. But for me, that doesn't matter. As a historian, yeah. I find it fascinating because it's this American drive to remove the human from the front line yeah, of yeah, battle yeah. James- to mitigate this cost to war. What does it look like? Uh, to, to, you know, uh, is, does it look like a biplane of the time, or does it look like, or does it, as it, does it got missile qualities? Depict it for us. I'm sure what's going to happen. People are going to jump straight on um, uh, uh, Google and, and look for it. But what does it look like? Yeah, it, it looks like a biplane. Um, you just kind of without the pilot in it. In fact, they've they've smoothed over where the pilot would be. Um, they've they've used that extra payload capacity to put 180 pounds of explosives on it. Yeah. Um, and then you just yeah you you send it off, you send it forwards. I mean, it has so, the propeller on the front and everything. So in a sense, the Kettering Bug is the first cruise missile, really, isn't it? I mean, this is this this absolutely. P- p- knocks the v1 as the first cruise missile operational cruise missile into a cocked hat it, it's it's more than 20 years earlier and it, it's doing exactly the same thing and pretty much in the same way isn't it you know gyroscopes um uh the idea that, that the engine the motor cuts when it reaches its target you fire it off a ramp i mean it's what what what's the difference in, in a way yeah, absolutely. I would certainly say it is the first cruise missile, and it was and it was put together by these these really early air power pioneers and inventors, people like Charles Kettering, who actually went on to invent the electric starter motor. And one of the people who really pushed to get the money behind this was um, General H. H. Arnold. Now you'll know General H. H. Arnold as the first head of the U.S. Um, the U.S. Air Force, the independent U.S. Yeah. Air Force. But this is a man who was the second person in the U.S. Army to learn to fly. Do you know who taught him how to fly? Oh, Orville Wright. Yeah, it was the Wright brothers. I mean, this is <laughs> this is crazy. And, and, and General Arnold pioneers this quest for precision, this quest for drones, all the way until his well, death. Well, yes, and then, he's, and then he, you know, he's one of the leading bombermen of the 1930s, yeah. along with, with Tui Spots and, yeah. you know, Ira Aker and... and the whole, all the rest of it, yeah. And they're developing Amazing. precision bombing doctrine. And so the Kettering bug doesn't work. And so what they try and do is they think, right, well, how can we make this precision idea work? Well, let's try and make it work within, you know, human-piloted aircraft, these manned bombers. And so this what is where... What we really need is a bomb site. Yeah, you've, you've beat me to it. Yeah, they need the oh, Norton... sorry, I'm, no, taking, no, I'm no, stealing no. your sandwiches. No, you, you're, yeah. you're on it. They need the Norden bomb site. And that thing is, I mean, what, it costs half as much as the Manhattan Project to develop that thing? Yeah. I mean, this is an early analog computer that you start to put in some variables. You know, you're flying, you're up at 20,000, 30,000 feet. You've got this analog computer, really early analog computer that they call the Norden bomb site. It's so sensitive that it's almost handcuffed the bombardier in and out of the plane. Um, yeah. You can put in wind speed. You can put in altitude. You can put in distance to target. It'll come up with this exact point that the bombardier can drop the bomb and then your bomb can drop with precision onto that target. If you can destroy something with precision, you don't need to send loads of bombs and you can reduce your sorties as well. Yeah, of course. And you can reduce the amount of damage that they hoped to the civilian population. But but, but, the, but, but the problem that also then uh, comes from that is you've got to know what you're aiming at. Yeah, you and, do, yeah. Uh, 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 and the, the, the demand that then places on 
your intelligence gathering and your ability to to sift and figure out what's where and whether it's worth hitting and how you prioritize that that then creates a that then creates a i mean in a way it creates a whole set of problems that you know that they're also grappling with the british also end up grappling with the bomber command like what on earth do you hit in inaccurately in this sort of sledgehammer style um it, it, it but it's such an interesting impulse isn't it that the technology will solve the problem and you see that you see that for the Americans throughout, because after all, you know, you you you, every, you have to mention the Manhattan Project in the same breath as the Norden bomb site and the B twenty nine. Really, the sort of three pinnacles of American um, technological effort in the war and spending, if nothing else, and and you know that that the, 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 they're looking to solve the problems this way is really really is. I mean, it's it's it. Although you know, the British are also using. High tech, but in the at the intelligence end, funnily enough, the thing that you know how you figure out what's where and what the enemy is up to that's, that becomes the British focus of effort, uh, 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 doesn't it? I mean, this is so interesting. So, uh, so what what's after the Kettering bug? I, I'm, 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 I'm mad for these <laughs> <Yes>. devices. <laughs> well, I, I just want to take you back to the Norden bomb site ever so quickly yeah. because Sorry. you know I, if if intelligence was the major problem, there would have been okay. But the trouble is, is that the Norden bomb site was tested across the plains of the United States in blue sky blue sky. Yeah. Yeah, 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 without yeah. flat guns being fired at them. Um, you know, they didn't ever do wartime testing of these technologies. Mm. And so when it came to deploying these in Europe, I mean, you just look outside your window, it's usually pretty cloudy. Um, if you drop bombs on anything, you're going to have some smoke and some fire. And the yeah. chances are when you're flying over Europe at this period of time, you're going to be under heavy fire. And so what happens is the pilots have to fly higher. The Norden site can't see through cloud and it can't see through smoke. Of course it can't. And so it becomes worse than useless. You have these really costly daily... So Mark Malcolm Gladwell is wrong. Go on. In what way do you think? <laughs> Well, because I'll let, I'll his let whole you book, make this argument. Because his whole book was about the brilliance of the Bo Norden bomb site and how it revolutionised war. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that it really rendered a lot of the American air power campaign in in Europe not only largely useless, but when, at a strategic level. But when it when it came down to it, I mean, the amount of of good American pilots, heavily trained crew that that lost their lives from daylight low altitude precision bombing just to try and make this Norden bomb site work is just unbelievable. It got to a point, James, now where Churchill had a meeting with Arnold, General Arnold, and was just like you need to stop this you know this just, just isn't working you need to turn yeah. towards the british way of bombing and they don't they try and they try all the way through 43 all the way through 44 yeah, yeah, yeah. tweaking well, there's a whole load of other work. things going on there's a whole load of other things going on of course i mean inevitably politics and you know post-war view and what what are the impulses that, that that make them not give up is it that they think the thing will come good in the end or is it that they think well, the it's, it, it, well, but it's I, also I, I, because more to, is it they think it will come good in the end or they think the british are being needlessly needlessly um uh you know cruel in their application of of strategic bombing or is it that they're not going to listen to the limeys or is it you know what's the what's the what because if it's not work because it isn't working it's, it's transparently doesn't doesn't work for them what's the what's the impetus to to sort of not take the advice yeah, I mean, well, James is right about the political point of view. You've spent all this money on this high-tech yeah. kit, and you've got to justify that spending. You know, the old argument of why, you know, f 
Fat Man and Little Boy were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, the idea that it was to, to prove this concept worked and to, yeah. to make sure that money wasn't wasted. Well, that's one element with the Norden bombsite. But the other, I think, is that imagine you've founded an organization on this idea that it can achieve precision in war. It can revolutionize warfare. It's in the fabric of your very identity of what it means to be in the US Army Air Service and then the US Army Air Force. They live and they breathe this. And they really do honestly want to make it work. We're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to James Rogers about drone warfare. It's an excellent point about how much daylight there is, clear daylight there is over Europe. It, 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 you know, I mean, it just in the summer alone is the summer alone is cloudy in Northwest Europe. And then there's the then there's the rest of the year. I mean, it, I, I, I think Richard Overy in his his book about strategic bombing has crunched the numbers on how many clear days there are over over north, you know, reliable clear days there are in Northwest Europe. And it's sort of a it's a handful, basically, you know, to fly from to fly from East Anglia to 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 to, um, you know, Hamburg or whatever. It's basically it basically never happens. Yeah, there's, there's something else going on, which is, it, it, I mean, you're absolutely right, James, about the, you know, it's the bomber men of the 1930s. This is, this is, they've they've spent the last decade and a bit kind of leading to this point, so they're not going to kind of give up at the first first furlong. Um, but the second point is, of course, is that if they if they go the British approach, which means nighttime bombing, um, then they're going to be they've got to start again. Well, they've got to start again because the whole a flying fortress is about operating in a formation in daylight in a defensive box like a shipping convoy so suddenly you've got all those 50 caliber guns which you don't need so you know so that means completely redesigning the whole b17 and b24 force thirdly you've got the fingers then you're kind of you know in the lap of the british and they want to be kind of independent the third thing is that post-war they don't want to be the u.s army air force they want to be the u.s air force and so they need to plow their own furrow so there's a whole load of factors going on which basically means that 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 by 19, August 1942, when they when the 8th Army is first, 8th Air Force is first set up, they've already reached the point of no return. And it's a bit like the British after the Butt Report in, in the summer of 1941. They've invested so much in area bombing that there is, you know, you simply cannot go backwards. So you have to find another way. And the other way, of course, is, is improved um, navigation devices, which, you know, comes in with H2S and or what the Americans call it H2X, don't they? Um, and G and Oboe and all those sort of things. But even they realise they get to a point where they know they have to change this. And so General Arnold does make some changes at the top, especially when it comes to the Pacific Theatre. You know, this is where you have General Curtis LeMay yeah. put in charge and you start using the Norden bombsite for something slightly different. You start using it to precisely hit an entire city to hit those nodes of a city that you can destroy with firebombs to such an extent that you have 180,000 dead in one night so we're talking about now we're, we're seeing a shift away from precision bombing in the European theatre to this area bombing fire bombing when it comes to Japan and the great irony of course is that one of the most precise strikes of the entire war is when 
you have the dropping of 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 of, of Fat Man and Little Boy yep. at the end of the war. They, it's the Norden bomb site that is used to drop those, and they hit within the within about five hundred meters of the Second Army base in Hiroshima and the Mitsubishi aircraft plant in Nagasaki. Now, you, do you need such levels of precision when it comes to nuclear bombs? Well, they wanted to make sure they hit it in certain areas so they could maximize the impact of the nuclear bombs and show that they really did work. But it's a strange trajectory and such an odd story that you go from the beginning of the war and this moral and ethical push for precision bombing and then by the end of the war you're using that same technology for sheer destruction yes but that that that's all about the degradation of people's uh, moral positions as as war progresses and the things the things you find yourself doing to try and get it finished is is uh, we talked to tammy davis biddle about this didn't we jim about the the sort of slither in the last two years of the war where they're just thinking why won't these bastards give up you know what are we what are we going to do to show them that they've lost? Um, yeah. Uh, apart from destroy that completely destroy their cities and strangle their economies and kill their populations and all this sort of I mean hideous stuff. And once yeah. you're in that mindset, I mean once you're bombing cities, and if you've got to try and make bombing the city stick, you're you're on a you're on a you're on a I think you're on a in, on a direct path to using the atom bomb. Actually, I think just as you said in ni- 1942 that the, the course is set. I think. By the time you start building the, 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 by the time the Manhattan project's underway, and they've got the thumbs up that they can build this device, they're going to use it. Because you know the, the decision's locked in. I think Truman's actual freedom to make a decision at that point, I think, is fairly is fairly limited um, uh, by circumstance. You've already been destroying cities and killing tens of thousands of yeah. people, and and creating yeah. fire bombs and firestorms. So. Is this any worse? I mean, obviously, there's a lingering factor of radio, radioactivity and all the rest of it. But apart yeah. from that... Um... But I seem to recall, James, that John F. Kennedy's brother... Was it his elder brother? Joseph Jr. Joseph yeah. Jr. Yeah. Yes, is, yes, is yes, killed yes. in a robot aircraft experiment that's, that's an unmanned bomber, like a, a drone... <laughs> yeah. So this is this is the other side of it exactly. So, you know, towards the end of the war precision becomes a really dirty word and it's abandoned for about a decade. Um in fact, as Arnold as Arnold retires, he sets up the Rand Corporation with a 10 million endowment from the US Air Force and the Rand Corporation, which is one of the world's first think tanks, continues kind of researching whether or not precision will be possible in the future. But during the war itself, where strategic precision and these early drones are being experimented with, there's also more of this tactical precision and here's where you start to jump in with joe kennedy jr is he's this 29 year old harvard graduate who is the son of the at this point the former u.s ambassador to the uk joe kennedy senior now joe kennedy jr is is a brave guy he's a, a u.s navy pilot he's done his tours of duty he can he can go home but he volunteers to take part in this new experimental operation called operation aphrodite slash operation Anvil. Now, they were really worried about a lot of the V weapons being developed and being sent towards London. And the whole point of Operation of Aphrodite slash Anvil was, create to, was to create these remotely piloted aerial systems, these drones that could be sent into the sky by a human pilot, right, by a team of two, and then be set on their course towards, well, in this case, it was actually they were aiming to hit the V3 weapon site in Mimiek in France. And then for the two crew to parachute out 
and then for control to be handed over to a C-12 mothership, which was a larger plane higher up in the sky and further back. The pilot of that plane would then take control of this, this drone, and then they would fly it in with precision because um, this aircraft had a video camera on the end of it as well that was connected up, and they could fly it in with precision into the target. Now, this is a fascinating thing because they basically what they did was they took battle-worn B-17s and then newer Liberators. They stripped everything they possibly could out of them and then they filled them full of as much Torpex explosive as they could. Torpex is 50% more powerful than TNT. They would put, you know, 12,000 pounds of this stuff inside and then they would take off and these brave pilots would set them on the course towards France. Now, the very, very sad thing is that on August 12, 1944, Joe Kennedy took off into the sky with his flight engineer, Bud Willie, and just as they were about to release, the Torpex exploded, incinerating them, never been anything found of them, and the plane, I spoke to some eyewitnesses of this actually when I was down in Norfolk, and they were saying it kind of exploded like a, a, an octopus in the sky, you had this giant explosion in the middle, and then this, these arms of raining down molten metal wow. um, onto onto the houses and, and, and the villages below, I mean they're saying that you know hundreds of buildings were, were damaged as a result of this gigantic explosion that reverberated across the region. So, so oh, Kennedy's God. just just vaporized. Kennedy is just vaporized, and his father, you know, he wanted him to be the next president of the United States. This was a very strong, fit man, very bright guy who was being set up for that run in the future. But this mantle then gets handed down to his his younger brother, to Jack, um, to, to Jack, yeah, to JFK, a, a war hero, but you know, a, a sickly guy who's you know got a lot of health issues. Um, I was speaking to some of his staffers actually, and they just said they said to me, you know, he was a he was a man is a young man in a hurry was was JFK, you know, almost like he didn't know he had that much time left. So wow. uh, the mantle gets handed down to him, and uh, yeah, he goes on, and the rest is history, I guess. So, so that's drone warfare completely tangled up in the history of America, um, yeah, sort of top top to bottom. Consequential. What do you know? That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Did they continue with that? Um, Operation Anvil after that or was that like you know this doesn't work we sack it off because I suppose you, you there's no black box you can't talk to the pilot when that happens can you like what, what, about what went wrong yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, late 44 here. So that yeah. starts to, to come to an end, really. Um, and then there are some experimentations with this post-Second World War. But, but I mean, it, it's largely abandoned at this point. Yeah. And, and that's a lot of the stories when it comes to drones. They just get so frustrated with not being able to make it work that there's probably six or seven incarnations of new drone programs throughout the Cold War until we get to that point in the late 1990s, early 2000s, where you've got your revolution in military affairs and your satellite controlled GPS position drones in the sky where you can finally use these things in a, in a successful armed capacity to the point where they spearhead warfare around the world today. Yeah. Um, so that's the Americans. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, what, what, what's everyone else, else doing? doing? Well, yeah, what else? What's everyone else up to? <laughs> well, I've, I've kind of taken you through through most of the, the history of the way in which drones developed during that period, really. Yeah. Um, they, they, they're, they're cumbersome. 
they're unpredictable they don't really work they're kind of useful for i think i think the british probably had the best use out of them they were yeah. useful for targeting really and the americans turned towards that as well they started to develop um some smaller drones like these these lightning bugs and things like that that could be sent up into the sky and really help with the precision of air defense in fact there's another story tied in that and there was this um this young factory worker working down and painting these small targeting drones in the United States when a reporter turned up to kind of report on these new innovative flying machines. And uh, he was really struck by the woman who was painting these drones. And um, that woman would become Marilyn Monroe. Uh, that's how she was discovered. She was discovered down painting drones. He took all these pictures of her of, of her doing her job, and uh, then took it back to the office. And uh, that's how she was discovered. You're kidding me? No, no, no. And then, of course, I mean, you can tie yeah, up the history there between yeah. But maybe that's another podcast, Al. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's quite extraordinary. Gosh, and then and and then the Germans famously, you know, have. have have I mean they're, they're not drones really are they the, the, the V1 he really is a cruise missile I suppose it's an unmanned aerial vehicle you could you know it depends on depends on your class, classification and the V2 is a ballistic missile is out out of this purview isn't it but are they are they developing um you know unmanned stuff beyond that are they uh, 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 with a guide by wire weapons and all that sort of stuff are they not they, is that as far as it goes that's as far as it goes. And like I said, with a 20% accuracy hit rate, I mean, they're, they're not yeah, working no particularly point. well either. But yeah, V1s, V2s, they're actually really influential post-Second World War for the United States. Mm. Because, of course, we know they hoover up so many of their scientists in Operation Paperclip, but they hoover up so many of these missile systems as well. And so there's a story I was going through the archives. I was looking through uh, General Arnold's papers at the Library of Congress. And they were saying, like, when they, when they turned up after the war, they would come across these, these V1s and V2s. And they'd be packaged up in a, a U.S. Army box, ready to be sent back to the U.S. Army to start experimenting with, because they wanted the advantage on this. And yeah. then the U.S. Navy would come along, take that box and put it in a bigger box and stamp U.S. Navy on top, so it'd be sent back <laughs> and they could get the advantage. And then the U.S. Army Air Force were like, well, I'll tell you what, what if we can get hold of these and we can start making this our, our way of maybe achieving long-range precision in the future? Could we make that work again? So it goes in a bigger box and it's stamped on top and sent back. But these things for, for General Arnold, are just a pure fascination and he has to get them and he has to try and experiment with them to make them work and you know that's what happens then during the cold war doesn't it you start to have this experimentation the creation of early intercontinental ballistic missiles yeah. tied up in that program to try and get to the moon as quickly as possible and it's actually those sort of early rocket systems that later do lead to the advancements in precision missile technologies long-range yeah. precision missiles and the more kind of larger drones that we have all of this is intertwined you can't separate the weapon system from the deployment system really the two the two's progress is intertwined throughout the cold war to a point where actually it's the rand corporation that was set up by arnold that starts to challenge strategic air command in the u.s air force to say look when it gets to the 1960s can we perhaps try and achieve precision in, in nuclear bombing this time around and who's in charge of strategic air command at this time who's in charge of the u.s air force i mean it goes up to bombs 
away General Curtis LeMay. Yeah. And so it becomes this fight between General Curtis LeMay and those in the RAND Corporation to try and decide the future of American nuclear strategy. Should it be about hitting the military targets in the Sino-Soviet bloc? Should it be yeah. about trying to hit the silos, what they called counter-force, countering the force, because yeah. we can hit them with precision? Or should it be about counter-value, which is what General Curtis LeMay wanted, where you almost had this... Um, Oh, there's this, there's this great exchange between one of the thinkers at the time, Herman Kahn, who was at the Rand Corporation, the, the kind of one of the dealers of Megadeth who wrote the book On Thermonuclear War. And um, he was talking to um, one of General Curtis LeMay's deputies, uh, General Powers, and um, they were describing, you know, what the future of an American nuclear attack might look like. 18,000 nuclear warheads um, spasmatically sent um, to kill hundreds of millions of people and the fires would rage through Western Europe. And um, he goes, you know, you, you haven't got a war plan here. Um, he says, he says, you've got a wargasm. You know, you're just going to send this whole thing all at once and you're going to go and just spasmatically destroy the entire world. And one of the rebuffs that was said to him, well, you know what? And this was said to William Kaufman, who was at Rand Corporation as well. He said, well, if there's two of us left and one of them, then we win. Um, <laughs> well, that's um, logic that's hard to beat. God <laughs> well, Kaufman, Kaufman turns to him and he goes, he goes, you better hope that um, it's a man and a woman, you know, because you know, this, is, this is the end of the world you're talking about. So the whole thing is just this this madness of megadeath. But these debates rage on. And it's a debate that's as old as time in the US military. Should we rely on destruction or should we rely on precision? And as you move forward in history, you know, we heard it from Obama. Drones were this panacea to solving the costs and risks of war today. It was all about pinpoint precision strike, being proportionate and discriminate. And these debates continue to happen in the US today. Because when Trump came to power, there was all the discussion about moving back towards destruction and abandoning this precision idea. So it's this, 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 it tears at the fracture of it, fractures the US military, tears at the fabric of them. Yeah, yeah, but of course, you know, when they're taking out sort of Osama bin Laden, for example, um, that's a precision attack, but it's, but it's people arriving in choppers, isn't it? You know, you're, you're still not, you're still not putting a, putting a, putting a missile on, on that compound. But it's, a, but, but, but a big part of the appeal of, of nuclear weapons when they first came along, after all, is it was going to all be cheaper, wasn't it? It was all going to be cheaper than running a standing army, than having a great big navy, than needing a great big air force. That in fact, because that was the appeal to the British state, wasn't it? Is that great, brilliant? We don't, you know, we'll have a standing army for a bit with national service. It's the first time post-war is the first time we've ever had a, a standing army in this country until national service ends long after the war. You, you, the idea is it's cheaper, yet it's also far more destructive that you know the, all these paradoxes that that, that, are, that are fed into this and all the byproduct of the idea of do we do things precisely can technology take the strain rather than people and the idea that you know that, that you've got a policy that's born of preserving your own people steel not flesh that could result in the destruction of the planet by its logical extension it's sort of you know the, the, i mean war, warfare is obviously packed with ironies but that's a particularly that's a particularly juicy one, isn't it? It's extra quite extraordinary. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you know, the whole idea of this was that if if the the Soviets did cross that line with their vast amounts, their vast preponderance of manpower, yeah. then you would send in these these nuclear missiles to to counter their attack on a kind of hair trigger if they yeah. crossed the wrong line. And yeah. I, was, I, was, I was talking to some of um, the staff who who worked for Kennedy at the time, people like Alan Eindhoven, who was one of the undersecretaries of the defense, and he was saying that the American troops that were out there had about you know three days of supplies because they know that the war wouldn't last very long and yeah. he said he was he was sent over to the UK and he was talking to British ministers and they were like you know this is a big burden on us we're sending our troops out there um, with 30 days of, of constant food supplies and he's like well why are you bothering you know 30 days as the war isn't going to last 30 yeah. days this is going to end pretty quickly if they come at you God, wow. well BAOR was supposed to fight for three days back to the Rhine or whatever it was and and then and then ring Downing Street. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Well, I'd like to have heard that conversation. <laughs> Imagine. Well, my father, when he war gaming in the seventies, where they do these exercises, they'd go to the point where they had to make the nuclear phone call. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Which is, you know, you think what? It's <laughs> ridiculous. But but, but, but there were means so of, in, but there's so still were means of sort of comparatively precision. I mean, I mentioned the ochre earlier on. I mean, that was that was pretty mm. precision, wasn't it? That was like a sort of. I mean, it's kamikaze, but I mean, at least you got someone. Yeah. Well, I suppose. I suppose, in a way, the 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 kamikazes are a sort of expression of drone warfare. If you've you've taken taken the idea that the men don't matter anymore. Yeah. You know that you that the so a lo- they're they're a kind of loitering suicide weapon, aren't they? The switchblade is a kamikaze weapon without a pilot, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, if if there was the same mentality in the U.S. Army Air Force, I'm sure that you know Joe and Bud could have taken that down onto the V3 yes. weapon site in Miniac, and they they could have destroyed it in that way. But, well, they you know, got their Congressional Medals of Honor in the process. I mean, that that's the that's the the peculiar yeah. thing about it, isn't it? Is where where in different cultures where you draw the line on heroic self sacrifice as well, which is the and the value you put on life. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and if we think about that thing that enshrined the whole reason why they were doing this, the U.S. Air Force, it was about saving U.S. military yeah. lives. So that yeah, was yeah. never yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. an option. It just it blows your mind the different ethics, the different motivations, the different strategies that are driving the Axis and Allied powers during the Second World War. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what a fascinating another- subject, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely amazing. Well, thank thank you so much, James. Thanks for talking to us and. Um, we should. We'll have you back to talk about Crete. I expect at some point because we've yeah. we've, we've kicked the Cretan ball around a bit, but we haven't really um, uh, we haven't done the resistance end of things at all, have we? No, and I, but but I can absolutely say that one thing we've never done is drone warfare in the Second World War. What do you think? Was it worth it? Too, too oh, niche? Most, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, brilliant. absolutely not. Well, brilliant because, because it ties because in with such bigger stuff about the whole the whole bombing yeah. and steel not flesh and everything else. It's... But, but 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 this is always it though, isn't it? Because because these things are expressions of culture and society and weapon systems yeah. express the cultures that produce them. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and speak to their interests and their and their fears as much as anything else. So, you know, the, the idea that America ends up with a massive nuclear arsenal because it's because what it wants to do is not get too involved in European warfare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whoa, exactly. Yeah, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think is the the moral of the story. 
I think you're right. And um, yeah, anyone who's interested, the book's out at the end of the year, Precision, Brilliant. A History of American Warfare with Manchester University Press. And you guys have such amazing fans. I'm always on Twitter looking at the independent company and everything else. Uh-huh. And so if at any point any of your listeners want to try out a, a, a podcast on the broader history of warfare from Napoleon to now, then check out the History Hit Warfare podcast twice a week. We are we are pale in comparison to you guys. But, um, uh, you know, well, you, uh, ch- check it out. The more the merrier. The more the merrier. Yeah, exactly. um, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. We've been talking to James Rogers. Um, we'll see you all again really, really soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio.